Well, welcome. My name is John McCombs. I'm one of the assistant pastors here at City Reform, and it is good to be uh, with you all. Um, uh, I want to first see if everybody has an outline. They were on the back, and perhaps you don't have one. And if you want to participate in the sermon a little bit later, you're going to need one. Right? You have a little bit of work to do. I need your help with one thing. So uh, Don's coming around, Don McMillan, who prayed earlier and is passing a few out. So I'd love for you to, for you to have one. Uh, we are starting an Advent series. It's a bit different of an Advent series. Uh, as Matt talked about, Advent just simply means our Lord's coming. And uh, we've been preaching through the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Not every question. Each week we take one or two or three or four or even five, and we read through them during the course of the service. Uh, and then we'll preach on a theme from one of them. But we've tried to time it up so that we can move uh, through some Advent themes. So this week we'll be looking really at redemption and light and darkness and Christ our Redeemer. Uh, next week we should be looking at the Incarnation. And the weeks after we should be looking at Christ as our prophet and as our priest and as our king. So how well this will work, I don't know, but it starts tonight. And if it doesn't work that well, then, uh, then when we get done, we'll, just, we'll talk about that and try something different next year. But I, I have a feeling it'll work well. So uh, I want to draw your attention tonight to Romans uh, chapter 3. Uh, our primary text will be verses 9 through 26. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there, but it's on page 6 in your bulletin. So Romans chapter 3, uh, verses 9 through 26, our custom is uh, that after I read uh, God's Word, I'll say this is the Word of the Lord, and if you could respond with, thanks be to God. So hear now God's Word from Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews... Any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of an ass is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ for all, who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, 
so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. So, I want to ask you, coming uh, off of our Thanksgiving holiday and as we near Christmas, how do you plan to celebrate December 21st, 2019? John, you look like you have an answer. How do you plan to celebrate December 21st, 2019? Okay, that's five days later. That will be the 26th. What are your plans? How are you going to celebrate December 21st? 2019, nobody, nobody has any plans. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, why on earth are you asking me how am I going to celebrate December 21st, 2019? Is this some kind of special day? What am I missing here? I didn't know I was supposed to be celebrating something. Well, what is that day? Well, that day, in the day of 2019, is the winter solstice. It's the winter Solstice. It's the, the date where the sun reaches uh, its most southerly declination of minus 23.4 degrees. And it's at the same time for everyone on the entire earth. So the winter solstice right, will be celebrated around the world on December 21st for us, 2019. And perhaps you didn't have any plans. It's the shortest day of the year. Right? It's the darkest day of the year. Just so you know, in Pittsburgh that day, sunrise will be at 7.40 a.m. Sunset will be at 4.57 p.m. Right? Before 5 o'clock. Doesn't that just seem wrong? <laughs> I looked it up in Jerusalem. Sunrise on that day will be 6.35. So they got an hour and five minutes on us on the front end. But they lose 17 minutes on the back end. Sunset will be at 4.40 p.m. So, how are you going to celebrate the darkest day of the year? Did you know that many people throughout history have gathered together to celebrate the winter solstice, the darkest day of the year? Did you know that? Not to be fair, they're not necessarily gathering together to celebrate the darkness, although some do, and to revel in it. And if you read online, you'll find that rather quickly. But most are gathering because they're anticipating the lengthening of days, the coming of light to dispel the darkness. Most are gathering to celebrate that the days are going to turn longer, something that we're already longing for here in Pittsburgh, are we not? Can you feel it already a little bit? Did the sun set just a little bit too early today? Are you missing what daylight and sunshine we get in the lovely city of Pittsburgh? I bet you are. Throughout history, many people have celebrated it in ancient Rome. Uh, it was named after Saturn, uh, Saturnalia. Uh, in Iran, they called it Yalda. They would celebrate uh, this day. Um, it would be called in Scandinavia the Feast of Jule, J-U-U-L. It's where we get the term Yule Log from. Okay? And in other places around the world, they celebrate this. And I don't think, we don't have a Pittsburgh tradition to celebrate this one, do we? We did have light out night. Is that kind of inspired by this? Maybe the same thing. Maybe just, you know, we just wanted to get it. We wanted to get this out of the way before Thanksgiving. No, it's not exactly the same. But nonetheless, it's people gathering in the darkness to celebrate the light. 
to think about the light and how when you're out in the dark and you've been out there too long and it just gets a little bit too cold, what do you want to do? What do you long to do? You long to go inside. You long to be warm. You long to be in front of a fire with some light and some sparks. And that's, that's what we long for when we're stuck in darkness. Well, our text today is a pretty dark text. Very dark, in fact. But it's also a text in which the darkness gives way to the light. So I'd like us just to ask a few questions tonight of this text. Uh, perhaps more of a, uh, a devotional uh, than, than, a, than a full sermon. I don't anticipate keeping you too long, but I'd like to ask three questions of this text tonight. Uh, three things as we think about the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, as we think about these themes of light and darkness. Uh, first, and first uh, is, is largely because last week we were not able to look into Genesis 2 and 3 the way Pastor Norman had anticipated. So I think I want to spend just a little bit of time there asking how did we get to such a dark place? How do we find ourselves in such a dark place. Next, I'd like to ask the question, just how dark is it? How dark is the darkness in which we find ourselves? And lastly, I'd like to ask, what light could dispel such a great darkness? So our, our first question, how do we get to such a dark place? I'm going to be reading a little bit from Genesis chapters 2 and 3. Um, this would be way too much to put in additional scriptures. So uh, Genesis chapter 2, these were texts Naaman had selected for last week, and we missed them. We did get to read through those series of catechism questions, which lead into this week's. And for those of you who didn't get enough, we have one more coming. That's why you need your outline. So you can have it, have it handy. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, after God has created all things in six days and declared them uh, very good, uh, then he will rest. And he will create man and woman uh, during that time. And he will uh, call Adam and Eve to tend uh, to, the, to the garden. And uh, he'll do many things in Genesis chapter 2. But he'll give a command to them in verses 15 through 17. And it reads thus. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now as we uh, skip down to Genesis chapter 3, we read these words. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, 
And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed thick leaves together and made themselves one cloth. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock, and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his head. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you were dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard to the tree of life. How do we get to such a dark place? Well, man's fall into sin. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, believing what they thought was right, believing what they felt was right, seeking their own desire, seeking to be like God, trusted themselves instead of God, and they brought us into an estate of sin and misery which we have read about. And we still find ourselves in today. All the troubles we find in our world can all be traced back to that one 
day. All the toil and the struggle in your work, whatever your occupation might be, you can trace back to that one day. If you're married, all the strife you've ever had with your husband or wife, you can trace back to that one day. If you've lost loved ones, you can trace it back to that one day. It all goes back to there. As a result of that one day, we find ourselves separated from God. Born with a death sentence hanging over our heads. Already dead, spiritually separated from Him in that way. And just walking out the physical death sentence. And that day comes to all of us. Anthropologists estimate there have been about 110 billion people in the world. And if there's 8 billion left today, that means 102 billion have come before us. And the count is death, 102 billion to two. We only read about two people in the Bible who were ever taken up into heaven. 102 billion find ourselves separated from God and unable to enter back into His presence where there is light, where there is warmth, where there is love, where there are all of the good things that our hearts long for and desire but often seek for in other places. We find ourselves in need of a great rescue, in need of a redeemer, in need of what was promised in Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman will crush seed of the serpent. Oh, do we need that seed of the woman? Oh, do we long for it? But it's been quite some time. From this day to that day, opinions vary, but it's been quite a while. And the pains have only grown worse. And so that brings us to our text today. The question is, if it's dark, how dark is it? Romans chapter 3 helps to answer that question for us. Just a few words about the book of Romans uh, before uh, we dive right into chapter 3. And I, I do mean a few words. In the, in the opening chapter, the first 15 or so verses, Paul is just, just really his introduction. Okay? Greetings and salutations and prayers and thanksgiving, the typical things that the Apostle Paul opens a letter with. And then in uh, verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1, he opens with his grand theme, really the, the points or the the, the, the uh, thesis of the letter, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. The Apostle Paul then goes on in the rest of that chapter to show that among the Gentiles, that are the non-Jewish people in the world, they have no righteousness. It's very bleak. If you have no Jewish blood within you whatsoever, then that speaks particularly to you. The end of Romans chapter 1, speaking of the things we worship and the things we chase after, and that we have no inherent righteousness in us. Romans chapter 2, up through chapter 3, uh, verse 8, then turn the tables to the Jew. 
And although they have the law and God's promises, yet they had no inherent righteousness in them either. It's a very dark picture. And where we pick up in our text, in Romans chapter 3, verse 9, now the Apostle Paul is combining those two things. And he's showing man's desperate need of righteousness. The Gentiles don't have it, the Jews don't have it, that's everybody, no one is righteous. And that's where he picks up in chapter 3, uh, verse 9. And the first thing he tells us is that all are under sin. So he asks the question, what then, are we Jews any better off? Paul speaking as a Jew. And he loves to ask rhetorical questions. He goes on to say, no, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. And now the Apostle Paul will proceed uh, to quote uh, a host of psalms in the next few verses. In particular here, he's going to be quoting from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, which we read earlier in our service. And he will have these words to say, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You think the Apostle Paul went out of his way to to anyone who would kind of like try and raise their hands and say, what, like, what, 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 what about I think he's dealing with each and every person and each and every objection that someone can have a righteousness that earns them right standing with God, that someone can do something to merit some kind of salvation from God on their own. Left to ourselves, no one does what is right. No one seeks after God. Not one of us. This is stifling to our modern sensibilities. And if you were with us this morning, uh, Dave Snow really spoke about that, did he not? How this just really smacks us in the face. How we just can't believe this is our condition. I mean, are we really that bad? Can this be true? Is it really this bleak? Is it really this dark? We move from learning that we're all under sin to now seeing that our words testify to our condition. Look with me in verses 13 and 14. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. This phrase, their throat is an open grave. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? It's as if there's death inside of us, which spiritually there is, and our throat just is the way things escape that are representative of our spiritual condition. It's as if the deadness inside of us is escaping through our throats, and then we see it traveling in the text to our tongues, which it says we use to deceive. And then it ends up as poison, right, uh, under our lips. And our mouths are full of curses and bitterness. 
if you were there again this morning, uh, uh, Dave Snoke uh, took a little excursion into the Ninth Commandment and showed us some of the ways in which we don't uphold the good name of our neighbor, some of the ways in which we speak things that aren't true. And, and, and so he probably took you back to something, but in case, in case you weren't there, I mean, if I asked you to think of when the last time you used words that were deceptive, or the last time someone used deceptive words to you, of the last time you used words that were intentionally hurtful, or even unintentionally hurtful, or someone used them to you. If I asked you to think of that, um, I, I trust many of you are probably more godly than I, so you might have to think back further in the recesses of your memory. But I bet you don't have to think back all that far, do you? Maybe it was today. Maybe it was yesterday. A few days ago. And those things kind of stick, don't they? And you can kind of remember them, especially, you know, I think most of us tend to remember them a little bit more when they're directed towards us as opposed to when we direct them to others. We tend to forget about those things. But this is how we use our words. Our words testify to our condition that we're under sin. Not only our words testify, though, look with me at verses 15 and 17. We'll see that our actions testify as well. That there's no righteousness in us. The text reads, their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. Quoting now from Proverbs in Isaiah. Uh, previously it was uh, uh, Psalms and Jeremiah. The, the Apostle Paul switches. He's just running through Old Testament scriptures here. And he's, he's talking about how our feet are swift to shed blood. And of course, this isn't a reference to war specifically. But I don't think you could exclude it from that, could you? I mean, it's much, much bigger than that. But if we, if we took time just to do a little case study, well, you, some of you may know that I'm a veteran, and that my wife was a veteran, um, and that we spent time deployed overseas fighting in a war. Uh, you probably don't know this. Um, uh, we volunteered to do that. We did ROTC. You know that's an all-volunteer army, but what you, what you don't know, I got ahead of myself, is um, my father was in Vietnam. Her father was in Vietnam. I don't know about her grandfather, but my grandfather was in World War II. And aside from the fact that we volunteered now post Vietnam War. Is that about the experience of most people? Is there anything that special about that? I mean, someone in every generation of every one of your families was probably involved in a serious conflict where people lost their lives. Because we, on our own and collectively, are swift to shed blood. And of course, in that bloodshed, we see ruin and misery. I felt those things in combat. And this is catechism language here, that we find ourselves in a state of sin and misery. This is not a unique 
20th, 21st century experience. This isn't Alicia and my story. I mean, I'm not trying to say it's everyone's story, but most places around the world, most generations end up in conflict, do they not? The way of peace, we have not known. We haven't known it with each other. Sometimes we don't know it with our closest neighbors. Sometimes we don't know it with our own friends and family. And above all, we don't know it with God. Our words testify to our condition. Our actions testify to our condition. And the Apostle Paul then kind of summarizes all of that in verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Just because there's no fear of God before man's eyes doesn't mean that men and women are not accountable to God. We read in verses 19 and 20, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable by God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Our denials of God, whether individually or collectively, of who He is, of what He requires of us, cannot remove us out from underneath His law. And one day, every mouth will be stopped. That is, there will be no excuses. See, His law cannot give life. That's not what it was designed for. It was designed to show us our sin. But in showing us our sin, it begins to point us to life. Through the law comes knowledge of sin, we read in verse 20. It's a dark picture, is it not? As we really stop and take inventory of ourselves, let alone the world around us, just our own hearts and the depths of depravity is dark. We need light. We need light in this darkness. What light could possibly dispel such a great darkness? Is it even possible? This is darker than the winter solstice on the North Pole. It's darkness as if you're in an underground cave and there is absolutely no light. It's utter darkness with no light. No hope. What could possibly remove it? Well, I'll ask you to look at the bottom of your uh, handout, if you have one. And I'd like us to read together one more Westminster Short Catechism that was left out of the bulletin. Not intentionally, but I think it will work out just as well this way. I'd like to ask you this question. Did God leave all mankind to perish in the state of sin and misery? Out of his mere good pleasure, from all eternity, God chose some for everlasting life, and he entered into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of their state of sin and misery, and to bring them into the state of salvation by a Redeemer. And this Redeemer is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And 
His righteousness, the righteousness of God, is our redemption. The Gentiles have no righteousness. The Jews have no righteousness. No, not one. No one. Where are we going to get righteousness from unless God acts for us? And so the Lord, Jesus Christ, takes on human flesh. And He lives the righteous life that you and I were meant to live. And He dies the sinner's death that you and I deserve. The righteousness of God is our redemption. And we read about that in verses 21 through 24. It was prophecy long ago, was it not? That this light would come in the midst of the darkness. The prophet Isaiah had this to say in chapter 9, verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shine. Christ is that light. In verse 21 we read, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The solution to our unrighteousness is the righteousness of Christ. His righteousness is our redemption. He is the light shining in the land of deep darkness. The Apostle John will write it this way. In the beginning was the Word. The Word's Jesus. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. You see, the true light has come into the world. And that true light is Jesus Christ. So the question then for us today is, are you trusting in the light of Christ? This text challenges us in that way. We see in, in verse 22 and then 25 to 26, these words, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And then verses 25 and 26, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus See, the grace of God in Christ and His righteousness is received by faith. And it's for all who believe. Christ's answer to the prayer in the dark that Pastor Matt preached about from Psalm 43 last week is none other than His own righteousness and His own work. The darkness of Pittsburgh that's closing in around us as winter is bearing in, there's a light 
that can dispel that darkness. There's a light that can walk through us in the midst of that darkness. Are you experiencing dark times in your life? There's a light in the midst of your darkness. When the darkness of life is closing in, when your own heart and the world around you when everywhere you look and turn there's nothing but darkness will you look to Christ, the light of the world and have life will you grab hold of this redemption that's offered in Christ Jesus if so, then no matter how dark it gets you can have confidence that not even the darkest darkness can overcome the light of God in Christ Jesus, our Redeemer. And perhaps you know someone who's walking through some dark times. We live in the midst of culture in a world that doesn't like darkness any more than we do. And they're celebrating light they're celebrating at light-up nights and in festivals all around the world. They're longing for light in the midst of the darkness and they don't know where to find it. Might God be pleased to use you to take the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ that the righteousness of God has been revealed from faith for faith that Jesus Christ has come and he's light in the midst of our darkness. And not only has he come, but he's coming back. And when he does, there will be no more darkness. There will be no need of a sun because the sun will be our light. So the true light, ladies and gentlemen, has come into the world. Is your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and his righteousness? And are you willing to take that light out into the darkness? Are you willing to take it into the dark places of your own heart, into the dark workplaces and spaces, into the dark schools, into the dark governments, into the dark, wherever the Lord sends you, that the light of Christ might be made known and that people might come to have life. Let's pray.